When you pick an investor, an institutional investor, the, the, the household name is one thing and it can go a long way. And when we talk about um, the signaling and powers of a good cap table, yes, it is great to have strong household name. But equally, and I would say personally, even more important is um, if that investor gets a board seat, who will you have on your board? And it doesn't mean that you need to be friends with that person or, you know, like fall in love, but you need to respect the person and believe that ultimately this person will make your company stronger and will make you a better business leader. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here once again. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, I am once again joined by my co-host, Professor Dries Baum, for the second deep dive into the Oric Legal Ninja series on Startup Pitfall. We're once again joined by our favorite legal ninja and VHU alum, Sven Groylich, partner at Oric, Harrington and Sutcliffe in Dusseldorf, to discuss five key points in financing uh, your startup. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. This then. This one, I have to admit, kind of hits home for me, maybe triggers a little PTSD because I know some of the topics that we're going to talk about. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing and learning some lessons on how I could have avoided these things and, and sharing that experience with uh, the folks that are listening to us. So be gentle, but be firm. I'm ready for you. <laughs> cool. Hey, Garrett. All right. Greece. Um, good to be back. Thanks for having me. Great. And let's maybe immediately dive in. Um, so when I was reading the, the Ninja series with the 10 fuck-ups that you described, um, I was immediately triggered by one that was saying giving away too much equity too early. And it immediately made me think about the topic of accelerators. And we have an accelerator at BAU, but that's a non-equity one. So we don't take equity in startups. But I see quite some accelerators around the world that take sometimes quite substantial equity in startups. When you get a cap table in front of you where you see an accelerator that has taken quite some equity in a pre-seat or a seat round, what, what, what is your feeling? Yeah, the, um, I mean, first of all, when, when you say fuck up, it's just much nicer than, 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 than Gary and I say it. So I think <laughs> it's that Belgian accent. It's so gentle, doesn't it? It, it, it just... It, it just makes cur cursing so much more civil. Thank you for that. So, um, giving, You're welcome. You're welcome. See, um, giving away uh, too much equity too early. I, I mean, it is so much we can discuss around this. But now that you mentioned it, and I, I want to take a little, it's not so much the accelerators like the the, the, the white combinators and the tech stars or um, other programs around the world, which I think usually take a uh, a share that is reasonable. Um, okay. uh, it, it, it is, um, we had these incubators and um, company builders um, uh, here and, and there are not that many left, but some of them are. And if this sounds familiar to you, um, Garrett, then um, let, let's talk about this. It's, it's this, yeah. this proposal where you have someone who basically says like, look, I, I have a great idea and I need a team to execute it. Um, I'll give the four people Four persons founded team, quote unquote founders, we'll come back to that in a second if these are real founders. Um, a 500,000 check um, or a million for the initial financing, and I take a 60% um, stake. And um, a couple of years later, we wonder why these startups tend to have failed. And when when we have similar proposals and we discussed this um, uh, last time when when you sometimes have a university or professor asking for you know a 50 percent um, cut of the pie um 
it is it is simple math. Um, assume you have someone taking 50, 60% of your startup, even if they give you some money for that, you need to factor in another 10% for your employee stock option program, you know, see above, what we discussed last time. And then as a good ballpark figure, every financing round thereafter will dilute you by 20%, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and if you then factor in that startups in Germany usually take about two to three financing rounds before they either go belly up then you don't care, or they got acquired. I mean, do the math. You have 40% non-diluted left. If you factor in the VSOP, or the employee stock option plan, that's even less. You multiply it by you know, um, 0.8, and then multiply it again by 0.8, and multiply it again by 0.8. You realize that you need a lot of intrinsic value um, to find this a very appealing long-term um, suggestion. And the thing is that smart investors will understand that. You know, this is, I mentioned this before, like um, I have worked on more than one financing rounds where we we, we saw a startup, we, we, you know, like our clients do, I'm, I'm just doing the legal work. And I said, we really like this, this, this startup and we like the founder team, but we have a problem with the equity split because these guys gave away too much equity too early. And we can only give them this valuation and they will need this amount of money and they probably need another financing round. Um, and we, we, we believe that down the road, when the founders are still very important, um, they might not be motivated enough. So we need to fix this. And this is a problem that you can foresee and that good founders should foresee. So be really like a Scotsman when it comes to giving away equity um, early on. This applies to your advisors, you know, the, the, the mentors you had and the programs you've been through. And Garrett, do you have experience with that yourself? That with the benefit of hindsight, as we sometimes politely say, that you think like, oh, at that time, we have really given too much equity away to somebody? Yeah, I guess I've been on both sides of, okay. of that table, right? But and, you also progressed uh, too much equity from somebody else. <laughs> well, I, I did run a, a venture studio okay. for, for a bit. And... Um, you know, I, I think there's a bit more nuance in there, right? Like, I mean, let's take the most well-known example in Germany of a company builder, which is Rocket Internet, right? Like Rocket Internet always took the majority of the equity and they created a lot of very, very wealthy founders out of it. Now, if you're just giving a 500K and taking 60% of the cap table, I think that obviously is terribly problematic because in the end, you're, that company is going to have to go out for capital to external investors. And those external investors will look at that cap table and see that dead money, that dead cap hit on there that's not really adding any value anymore and say, these founders are not going to be motivated. They're going to be diluted down to nothing. If it's a kind of closed ecosystem where there's plenty of capital to grow, then I think there's a bit more nuance to it, you know? Um, and one of the things that I learned building a couple of ventures in partnership with corporates where we weren't exploitative like that, but um, but comparable, I would say, is that what is the value that's being provided by that cap table hit, right? Like if it's just a small check, it's not a whole lot of value. They're going to burn through that really quickly and they're going to have to go to external investors. If there is a corporate partner that may be providing IP or distribution or, you know, sales channels or whatever it might be, then that can start having some different value. Again, if it's a closed ecosystem where the capital is all coming from the same place, the big problem with those types of models is, you know, this corporate or this venture studio builds a startup, gives them 500 million bucks and says, okay, validate this, now go out and raise capital. And the founders are sitting on 10% each and this venture studio is sitting on 50%. And now they're going to get diluted and diluted again and diluted again. And even if they have a nice, health, nice healthy exit, those founders may only walk away with a, a million, a million or something, you know? Um, yeah. let, let, sorry, let me, let me pause you here. Even in, and I restrain myself for 30 seconds, which is much longer than you do. The, even in this corporate setup, you know, like, leave it aside the, 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 these cases where you basically outsource just some development uh, into, into something you call a startup spin out because you just want to have it away from your mothership. Even if you provide value, 
like IP or sales um, distributions. For in external investors, they want the startup to work on a standalone basis. They need That's to right. exit the standpoint, and they just don't want to sell it back to the mothership for pennies on the dollar. That's so, right. And then, so even there, you have the, the at some point you need to either you know like get this this thing work on a standalone basis and and um, cut ties with the mothership. Then you have still this massive investor. Who might become disinterested in the startup? But yeah, that's ex that's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly what I was saying. Is if you bring in external capital, it's got, the model breaks. Yeah. There's no question about that. I, I I'm in total agreement. I just I probably wouldn't make that the blanket kind of approach that that model doesn't work because I think Rocket, you know, you look at Zalando or HelloFresh or these many other companies that came out of there that created essentially billionaires out of it. So it can work in the right situation, but as soon as you syndicate with external capital, I, I agree, I, I think. But I think this doesn't just apply to, to venture builders, right? It, it applies to angel investors. It applies to the way, you know, maybe can is, I is can allocated. I raise Can I raise one special animal that I have had some contact with? And I want to hear Sven's opinion about that. Technology transfer offices at universities I've seen sometimes claims being made by that kind of offices about how much equity the university should have in a spin-out, which at least I, not being an expert, that raised my eyebrows, I would say. <laughs> like, okay, if you think that the university should take that amount of equity, which investor in the hell would be willing to join you? Because then you're already diluted like hell. Some experiences there, Sven, or am I now just having the wrong examples? No, I mean, there's, there's, um, there, was, there was a recent article um, in the Financial Times um, debating whether the, the British universities take too much um, stake in the startups, and that is a chilling effect on the spin-out uh, um, activities in their ecosystem. And um, we probably have similar issues um, in Germany. I would say, I mean, it's, first of all, I think it's massively important for us to get more university spin-outs, especially IP-heavy spin-outs. From our tech university and research institutes and a lot of things are happening there there's political momentum um, and um, very encouraging but these proposals i mean you always have these um these transfer offices who have very different incentives they don't have the carry structure like the vc investors these people you know want to stay on the good side of the law um and and don't want to get in conflict with any state um aid laws like Beihilferecht. Um, which is always the you know like the scary thing on the wall. Um, the and then they say like look we've we've developed this this technology we spent X million on this and it's worth at least this and we want even you know like even either we want to have massive um, upfront cash payments or uh, continuous cash payments license fees or we want to have a massive equity stake. And then you have the founders who you know say like basically at the moment it's just a patent. It's an, you know, maybe it's not even a patent, but a patent application and without execution, it's worth nothing. And you need to bridge that. Um, and I think that sometimes transfer um, uh, centers need to, to take a deep breath here as well and, and take a step back and say, look, look maybe 5% is better than having 25% of something. You know, like, was it, when you say like 5% is better than, um, in Facebook is better than 100% in StudiVZ. I mean, if you're old enough to understand that joke, <laughs> you, know, like you should have been, you know, probably be in bed now. Um, <laughs> the, but but see, I I don't I don't think that that um, transfer um, centers in, in in Germany, a technology transfer centers in Germany, make these these um, uh, mistakes on a large scale. But I think that still they take too much equity. I would say that um, uh, on average, depending on the on the on the relevance of the IP. Anything between two to ten percent is kind of okay, and it shouldn't be a problem for future investors. Um, but these, these, I mean, Oxford University was known for that—that that they took fifty percent in, in in their spinouts, and well, that, that definitely raises eyebrows with investors. Yeah, clear. But but let's come to the angels, and 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 I think Garrett mentioned them already, because he is also like like good and bad angels. Bad cases. Garrett, you go first because we we, we, <laughs> we pre-discussed this. I, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I'll, I'll try not to be too ethnocentric on this, but, you know, I built my first venture back startup in Germany in 2009, 2010. And when I started seeing what kind of offers were being presented, even as a first time founder, I was shocked by what some of the angels were, were asking for. And they were kind of arguing like, hey, we're, we're the money you know we're putting up all the all of the risk so we want a, a huge chunk of the pie and it wasn't necessarily just hey we want 50% you know but it was we want multiples in a liquidation preference and they had all sorts of kickers in there that were really sweetheart deals for those investors so you know we talk a lot about percentages but percentages aren't everything in in deals and Sven, I'm sure you can you can talk more about that but but in the end, when you're looking at angel investors, like I, I think it's the same way you would look at IP coming out of a university is from the founder perspective is what value does this provide? If you need that IP to build a business and there is no business without the IP, it kind of goes the same way as the as the universities that, hey, there's we can't commercialize that IP without the founders kind of building it. I think the same the same situation can be said for any type of investor. Like if they bring, if they bring more value to the table, you know, there could aside from just money that can have a lot of value, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but nevertheless, um, I always, the founders that I work with, I always kind of tell them, you know, there's a, there's a magic number. And, you know, when I try to generalize it, like how much, what's our valuation? You know, we're pre-seed startup. What's our valuation? How much are we going to sell of our company to to raise the capital? You know, the startup says, "Hey, we want to raise 500k in a pre-seed. What's our what's our valuation? How much are we going to sell?" Because they have very, it's very difficult for them to come up with a tangible value for their venture. They're not generating they're not generating much revenue yet. They've got an early MVP product, and I, I always tell them just. Keep it super simple. You know, a good investor shouldn't take more than 20% in a round, 20, 25% in a round maximum. I think 25 is is already pushing it. If it's a good investor that's playing the long game and looking at the looking at the long-term efficacy of that investment, they're going to make sure that the founders still have a good chunk of capital. So when the future investors come in, um, it still looks relatively clean. Do you agree with that, Sven? Angels are, I mean, it's, it's a multifaceted um, and, and complex issue. That's me basically trying to, to wiggle around um, and not giving you a straight answer. Um, angels are the real risk takers. I mean, that, that's, that's the starting point. It's um, when you're basically just a PowerPoint idea and a pipe dream, they give you money. Um, and usually, you know, they are money. Um, so they are the real risk takers. And the good angels understand it's an equity thing. They will, they will usually not ask for onerous um, terms um, that at some point might just come um, you know, down to bite them. Like for example, when you said like um, uh, more than multiple um, liquidation preferences. So when you do this in a pre-seed stage as an angel, what do you think will the seed investor do and the A investor and the B investor? Will they take less than, than you know, like the, the, the pre no, usually they, they take this as a point of departure. Then they have their own lawyers and advisors who also have ideas. And usually, you know, you, you just add on and then you stack up liquidation preference after liquidation preference. And at some point, um, the pre-seed angel investor is economically a bit like the common shareholder. So um, a good good angel would keep the, the, uh, the documentation lean. Um, Good angel investors are super helpful. They can, you know, they make or break the the, the startup, and um, they can make all the difference in the world. Um, now that you mentioned this, um, some terms, and I've come across this, and without giving names now, but some angels in our capital and um, also in the capital of Bavaria um, have become very famous and um, apparently have a lot of leather. And when you see terms that basically say like, I wanna have a 10% stake in the company that's dilution protected until the company raises X million euros. Or I'll give you 500,000 now at a valuation of X and I wanna have the right to give you another 500,000 at that valuation within the next five years. 
basically, you know, as an as an angel, you ask for um, uh, optionality and you move a lot of dilution to the founders potentially, because every investor in will factor this in into famous fully diluted um, valuation of your startup, and you basically delivered. You said like. Startup is going to fly. I have an initial investment at risk of 500,000, and I will only invest the other 500,000 at this very attractive valuation if the startup flies. So it's a one-sided bet. All the optionality is on my side. And I don't say that founders shouldn't do this. They should just be aware of what they are doing there. And see, is this angel worth it? Um, is this angel really you know, moving the needle for me? And does it just justify these terms? Um, but I agree with you, basically, good angels should also have the foresight that they think about multiple financing rounds ahead and that diluting the founders too heavily um, initially will also come to bite them. Because when you see these, these um, investment proposals where you have a 20% ESOP and out of the 20% stock option plan and out of the 20% stock option plan, 70% are, are allocated to the founders to fix some some early round dilutions, you know that something is broken, right? This 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 program, this stock option pool, is is for employees. It's not to rectify early stage um, uh, dilution mistakes. I wanna I wanna ask you something because what I've started to see more in Germany is a movement more towards the U.S. in the early stages, which is, you know, some kind of I know we don't have a safe here, but what I see more than anything now with angels are convertible notes, very standard terms, 20 percent discount, five percent uh, interest. You know, converts at the next round um, based maybe on a, whatever certain valuation. Maybe you have to briefly explain what a convertible note is for our audience. I was just teeing up Sven to do that, actually. So <laughs> okay. So, so Sven, maybe you could touch on like is what what a convertible note is, and do you see this as kind of the the new standard for pre-seed angel investment? Yes. Yes. Okay. So in a nutshell, a convertible note is um, is a debt instrument, but is never meant to be repaid. So it is you give a loan, and that loan usually accrues interest. And the principal plus the accrued interest, if there is an interest, um, is the conversion amount. And it converts upon certain events into equity. Usually, it's a qualified financing round. So when the company does a real price financing round, uh, a new serious investor comes in, all the convertible note holders will also convert. They will take the price of that round as a point of departure, deduct a discount because the note holder has invested in an earlier stage when there was more risk. And usually there's also a cap of the uh, maximum price and sometimes a floor. Um, I think convertible notes are super helpful. Actually, I would, I would recommend if you have the chance and you can get away with this as a founder, if you raise less than 500,000, absolutely, and better even less than a million, do it through a convertible. Um, the transaction cost, the time it takes you, to prepare a fully fledged financing round documentation. The amount of money you have to spend on lawyers, although you should not think about this as cost, but more as an investment, and notary, <laughs> it just like it, it, it cuts into the, the you know the few euros you raise, right? And it is the most expensive equity you can give away. And you need to come up with a valuation at that point in time. And, you know, this, this can be an arm wrestling match, or you can just say, like, look, let's kick this down the road a little bit until we have more data points and a, and a real investor comes in and gives us a price round and we take that price as a point of departure, as I mentioned. So I think it's super helpful. It's so much faster, um, cheaper, and it keeps the, ca um, the, the, the cap table clean. Um, the problem is sometimes that when, when founders do that, they pick up all these small tickets. And then, um, you know, before you realize that you have raised 20 convertible notes. I don't say that this is the end of the world, but you just need to be aware that, you know, at that point in time, in addition to the four founders have, um, on the cap table, you will have 20 people come in, plus whoever then leads and, and co-leads your serious seat around. So, and that can already be quite a bit for an early stage startup. And as said, our German GmbH is not meant to have too many shareholders. So that can add um, additional complexities and problems down the road. But to give you 
a long and winded answer in a short sentence, Garrett, very crisp. Yes, convertible notes are an amazing tool. I wish we would have the level of standardization as the US has with a safe instrument. The convertibles don't work exactly like a safe, but economically they are kind of like the same. Um, with a full stop. So answer the question. But but now that you know we have founders uh, amongst our listeners, um, there are three economic levers. It's the interest rate, it's the discount, it's the cap. And this is not the order of importance, right? You should not optimize for the interest rate. If you do the math and run the Excel, you will realize that the discount and a good cap will be worth way more for you, i.e. reduce your dilution, um, than, than negotiating too much of interest rate. Um, so just... We sometimes see founders say, oh, yeah, you know, we reduced them, we negotiated them down from 8 to 5% interest rate. Okay, and what's the cap? Oh, great. Amazing. If you raise below that cap, you have other issues. But, yeah, that's probably not the best lever to pull. Ben, you brought up a topic in there that it might be worth going one layer deep because you brought up a pattern that I see so often, which is, you know, so many people in that early round, they're cobbling together 10,000 euro checks left and right. And all of a sudden you have 20 angel investors all offering a convertible. What, what do you recommend as an approach to be able, you know, that's a lot of signatures when it goes to the next round that you're aggregating and, you know, it's, it's Germany. So they want eight signatures, it seems like on everything. What do you recommend? Is there a way to kind of syndicate or aggregate them in an elegant way where it doesn't create such a mess? Yeah, I mean, first of all, don't do it. I mean, that, that would be number one advice. I know that this, this is you know, speaking to you from the mountain up high. Um, and sometimes you, you, this is the, you have either that option or no startup is option B. Um, so, but if you can get away with that, do not do these little tickets. Because um, first of all, these are usually not sophisticated investors, family members, and then Christmas party becomes an investor relationship meeting. Um, <laughs> or you have people who do this for the first time and give you 20K, but think that they now have someone to talk to and call you every day. <laughs> um, and at some point, so you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but at some point they will need to, to convert. Um, and there are options to do that. You can pool them um, either in a separate entity, which is a bit more complex and costly to set up, but keeps your cap table cleaner, or at least um, get them into a contractual pool where you ask them to um, uh, appoint a pool leader and give that pool leader um, a power of attorney. But, but frankly, um, the, the reality is in Germany, this would only get you so far. Um, by the end of the day, in most cases, you will still need to get them to approve a financing round um, give a power of attorney again or show up at the notary. And... You know, like I, I've seen cap tables where you think like, oh, my God, like even if I only need a week for the negotiations, we better start with the POA, the power of attorney process now, because that will be on the critical path. Gotcha. Then maybe um, another important kind of part of the, the startup life is also the board, which we did not yet discuss, which I think can also have quite some governance implications. So if you think about boards of a startup, Sven, what are the kind of common mistakes that you see there that startups do? The, um, I mean, the, the first of all is the question is like, when, when should you establish a board? Yeah. If, if, if you have three co-founders and you have one investor, what's the point of having the board? I mean, if that founder wants to talk to you, that person can pick up the phone. Um, and you can either hold a four-person board meeting or a four-person shareholders meeting. Um, but once your cap table becomes a bit uh, messier, um, it makes sense um, to move also some um, decision and, and approval uh, making authority to a, to a board. And that is the board as a control instance. And many founders stop here, okay. um, where you, you see this, this board is basically, yeah, these, these, these are the people I need to bring some of the actions I want to do so and ask them for approval. And that is certainly um, an important role for the board because these, you know, Investors tend to ask for board seats. Um, 
let's talk about the board composition in a minute, but it, it is helpful to also then have them weigh in on, on how money is, you know, the few Benjamins that you have, how they are spent. Um, so um, that's, up, you know, that's, that's one of the, the tasks of a board, but a good board is so much more. A good board um, will help you as a founder also to become um, a better business leader and help you to develop because as you know, and I'll let Garrett talk to that because he has been that down that road is um, it takes a different founder CEO in the first 12 months and then the next 12 months and so on. And a good board knows that it's, you know, like it, it also needs to change. They need other people to come on the board at some point in time. At some point, the composition and the majority of the board will usually switch to the investor side of the house. Um, but a good board will help you, help you to, to develop and make that journey. Or, and that is, you know, an awkward discussion then, but um, mature founders will not shy away here, is also maybe to work with the founder and say, maybe you're not the right CEO for the next growth stage. Maybe you, you are the chief strategy officer. Maybe you move more into an operational role, um, but maybe we should bring in another um, CEO or if we are gearing um, up for a capital market exit at some point, maybe we need another CFO. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is a, a, a conversation that um, a good board can, can, can start, can inspire and also help um, to stay um, within, within boundaries and, and you know, don't, don't um, lead to too much distraction there. But Garrett, you've been down that road, right? I've been down that road. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, with mixed experience, I think, you know, and and I've seen some pretty bad stories. You know, one thing that I was talking with a founder today over lunch, actually, who was saying one of her friends just got fired from the company that he founded. He was the founder CEO. Company was on a pretty good growth trajectory. And, you know, he... The founders were no longer in control of the board. The board kind of quietly had made the decision with the investors that it was time to bring in a a, a new, better CEO for that stage of the company. And he was blindsided, essentially, in a board meeting that he was being thrown out. Now, is that the best thing for the company? Chances are it is. These people have a vested interest. They're looking for you know, the the greatest utility for the success of that company. And they made that decision. Is it the best thing for the founder? Maybe if the company turns out to do well in the end, but board control is a big lever, right? And, And to me as a founder, it's the difference between, you know, being your own boss and now kind of working for your investors you know ideally you have a good relationship and that doesn't matter so much and you're executing well but there is a huge turning point when the founders are no longer you know leading the decision making of that board that's a transition and also it's a mental transition process that founders need to be aware of and let, let me double click on what you just said like no longer being the boss um, I would say like good board is part of good corporate governance. This is no yep. longer your firm. I mean, right. you, you have asked investors to give you money and buy shares for that. Yep. Um, and that means that, you know, like these are stakeholders who have legitimate interests. And um, if you want to gear up for a public market exit and, and you know, we consider it good corporate governance so that um, the majority of the cap table can ultimately decide what to do Um and that is hard, yes, but probably at that point in time, your equity value will um, will make up for yep. some hurt feelings. I absolutely, just, just to touch on that really quickly, I absolutely agree. But <clears throat> I think, you know, you if you spend your, you, you have a mission or a dream, you want to be a founder, like what are the motivations for somebody that could be making a really nice paycheck in a corporate world to take on all this risk to, to go build something with all of that uncertainty? And the autonomy of it is oftentimes one of those big motivators. And I just think it's important for founders to understand that as you know, every all those things start to fail at scale. And even though the business is becoming more successful, you are slowly losing your autonomy. And frankly, that happens when you take your first check. You know, you may still 
control the cap table, but you've got investors, they have preferences, they're pulling a lot more strings, even if they don't have strategic control of the company. And over time, that autonomy slowly gets whittled away. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying it can. it is definitely a jarring thing. You know, even for founders that have done it before, you see it, it's coming, you know your world is going to be different. You're spending more time reporting into that governance than than executing. And it's important. It usually um, leads to greater success, but it is uh, it is creates a situation of more uncertainty and instability for that founder. And, and good investors will, I mean, they, they, they are cognizant of this, that it is, they are taxing also the agility of the founders and the speed by asking for certain approval rights and having the board procedures as the way they set it up. So, um, but nevertheless, it is, you give away um, a certain percentage of your company, um, therefore people pay, people who have other stakeholders who have limited partners, um, they need to answer to. And it is it is a struggle um, a little bit, but there can be a good balance of powers and checks and balances. And um, investors can take it too far. I, I remember last week I discussed with, with an investor for quite some time, whether this investor really has a veto on every allocation of options under the stock option plan. And I thought, Dude, these are hiring decisions and it's part of the compensation package. And I understand that you don't want us to throw away um, these options, but do you really want to be involved in every hire? And, you know, for example, and, and there, the, I think ultimately we found a good solution there. Um, and that's a little bit where the, the borders or the fringes where you need to, to um, find a good balance. But ultimately, um, a good board will understand that. And they don't want to be involved and, and, and contacted by you three times a week. No. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a moral to this story and this conversation in the end, which is a good board, right? Like mm -hmm. I've got a, a startup that, that I support and they took on venture capital and their VC is has never been a founder in his or her life, I will say. And, you know, we had Jan Reichelt on a while back, who's one of the partners in 10X and they're everyone in that fund is uh, an entrepreneur, you know, and there's such a big difference between having someone that's sole interest is the return on the fund versus someone that understands the position of the founder, you know, and I don't want to make too big a differentiations that exist here, but there can be situations where a partner in a fund, you know, essentially either loses interest because he's deemed that company a zombie and just doesn't put any effort into it anymore, is pushing for an early exit or a risky decision because they're raising their next fund and they want to kind of clean up whatever they've got, you know, in their portfolio. So there can be misaligned interests. So, you know, in the end, it's who do you have on that board? Are their objectives and interests aligned? You know, are they supportive of the founders as much as, as they are the, the business? So um, you got the right people. You don't have the problems, generally speaking. Yeah, and then let me, let me just reiterate that because I think that's something that's good founders understand and good angels will also help a founder understand this. When you pick an investor, an institutional investor, the, the, the household name is one thing, and it can go a long way. And when we talk about um, the signaling and powers of a good cap table, yes, it is great to have strong household name. But equally, and I would say personally, even more important is um, if that investor gets a board seat, who will you have on your board? And it doesn't mean that you need to be friends with that person or, you know, like fall in love, but you need to respect the person and believe that ultimately this person will make your company stronger and will make you a better business leader um, and will have the relevant know-how for this period of time ahead of you, but also understand that um, his or her role will be limited in time. And that, you know, like the worst thing is like these angels who are sitting on your board and just love it to be on the board because now they meet all these important famous people from these VCs and they are involved in all these important decisions. And, you know, after financing round and financing round, the board just gets bigger because you don't get these people out of, you know, away from the board, uh, off the board, um, long after their usefulness has expired. 
Greece. I'm sorry. We, we, we're no, 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 no. I, I let you go, go deep into this discussion. So <laughs> I was <laughs> staying quiet. But actually, because I think we come here to a very fundamental point, and let me briefly throw in some academic research at this stage. What, why do people found companies? And there are two main reasons. They want to have autonomy and they want to have control. And what you guys just described is at a certain point, actually, these two fundamental drivers of you as a founder disappear because actually you are no longer in control of your startup. It's the investors that have the equity that are in control of your startup. And so you're losing actually quite some autonomy. So almost kind of the fundamental drivers that you have as a founder disappear. And as Fen, you were saying, yeah, it's sometimes a bit tough and <laughs> it can be difficult. But for me, it's like it's it's completely changing the rules of the game, not? Uh, so you yeah, also, I mean, as a lawyer, do you do you see yourself having a role in, in managing that huge transition process? Or, they, or is it like, yeah, they have to get, they have to accept that and that's it? No, I mean, first of all, it's like this autonomy that you made between founders and investors. I mean, the group of investors is usually way more complex. Um, mm. when, when you do multiple investment rounds, um, you often find that the pre-seed investor tends to be way closer to the common shareholder from an incentive perspective. Um, and so it's just like this, these, um, you know, these, these, these camps that we, we think of. It's, it's in reality, I think it's, it's more complex. Um, and... Good investors will want to have the founders um, have all the autonomy that they need as long as it's value adding from their perspective. Um, at some point, startups, many startups are, are well advised also to um, emancipate from the founders and you know, create a brand, a perception that they will work and thrive even without the founders. You know, like we've seen multiple, multiple cases and examples where bad behavior of a, of a founder can can really harm the the the, the startup because right. that founder is still in the public's perspective too closely associated um, with the startup and the the, the 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 company has never emancipated from from the perspective that this is his or her um startup and from an investor's perspective you don't want that but it is a balance of power yes but these are adult people there's a lot of money at stake so i believe that people are you know having this 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 fruitful debate and coming to good uh, good agreements and then every so often you need to to readjust that and yes sometimes the founders lose control but you have to ask yourself like is this in the best interest of the company and its employees and other stakeholders and sometimes the answer is clearly yes okay and garrett I, what, what I mean, is your uh, feeling well listen I, I, I this conversation makes sense to me because it's a good lawyer's job to tell you and prepare you for the worst case scenario. The first thing I want to say is, you know, I know a lot of angel investors. I've been an angel investor. And for every one kind of bad apple or crappy shitty deal, I see 10 totally fair ones, yeah. you know? So for the most part, it's pretty good out there. You know, I always tell founders not to think of founders on one side of the table and investors on the other. I try to get them to think of, you know, you're raising this money. Someone's giving you a half a million euros. You're basically taking on another business partner and you yeah. should treat that relationship as such. Right. And, and, and for the love of God, do, do your due diligence. I mean, do your how can you have, you want to, like, yeah, we signed a convertible noted agreement with this person and, and it, you know, and you know that, okay, this person will end up with a lot of shares on your cap table. Have you spoken to portfolio companies of this investor? That's right. And the answer That's is right. no. And I said, like, I mean, honestly, dude, seriously, of course you need to to make you know your own due diligence and also make sure, and that's also what we see more often than not, is make sure that expectations match. I mean, what do you expect from this angel? Um, many founders take money and are afterwards completely flabbergasted that this investor is not doing the financing round for them. This angel. And we said, like, well, you know, good angels, you Yes, they can help you um, open doors, but they will not do your job. And you should have discussed expectations before you take that money. So um, I agree with you, you Garrett. The good angels, they are in a reputation game. Yep. And they want to see the good deals and they want to be invited to the good deals. Mm -hmm. So they are concerned about their, their, their 
jurisdiction. Absolutely, yes. And that is, frankly, from my perspective, and I shouldn't say this as a lawyer, that might be more helpful than all the legalese in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think you make a really good point there. And it's not just angels, but with VCs too. Like I recently saw, uh, I had an experience with one of my portfolio companies. They got a VC deal and the VC really pulled some hardball moves on them that were detrimental to the company. And that leaked out. And now nobody wants this this particular VC you know, joining them in on rounds. And especially, look, if they're the big ones, it's a different story. But if they're a micro or a smaller VC that's not going to lead around, if they jeopardize their reputation and they screw over a founder, not only do the founders not want that, the good founders not want that capital, but the other VCs don't want to play in the same sandbox with them. So there are some social levers that exist to kind of keep people playing relatively nice but it, but i think the one thing it is worth mentioning is you know a good founder should do their diligence on who they're taking money from they should do their homework they should talk to the other portfolio founders they should dig deeper but a lot of times they'll end up in a situation where okay hey there's some red flags here but this is the only person that's giving us money and now we have to make the choice to do we get in bed with potentially the devil or do we just let our company die because we're just we're out of runway? What do we do? You know, and I, I think it's this these feelings of desperation and raising capital and points of weakness rather than points of strength that what leads to most of these problems and the bad decisions in the end. I don't I think most founders will actually try to do their homework and then they'll go to a situation like we don't have any choice. What are we what are we going to do? We either take bad money or we die. And that's a hard situation to be in. And I think that I think we're not so going to solve. Let me maybe problems. ask. So, Sven, somebody comes in your office with exactly this problem. They're they are like, OK, we are desperate. We have no other options. We found this potential investor. We see a lot of red flags. But yeah, what do we do? What do you say to them? I cannot. I cannot make the decision for them. And I'm, I'm usually I'm, I'm treading carefully here because this is a very emotionally charged situation and you try to not get emotionally involved. Um, the question that, that I usually then ask is like, if this is a bridge financing, a bridge to where? I mean, what is, what is the realistic outcome here and not just a gamble? Um, because if, if there is, and in many cases as an outsider, you, you really have doubts. Yes, and then you're proven wrong by these stories that we then lionize in the media. But statistics, on average, um, situations might not get better. And you have just basically thrown in another six to nine months of your life mm. with opportunity costs, and um, you might have just done something something better. And so it's, it's just like, what, what is the, the realistic turnaround scenario? And what will future investors think about this? Assuming that the good things happen and you can, you can, you can, you know, like uh, get the ship back on course, like, like what, what will happen next? If you've totally messed up your cap table, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of, yeah, we, we cross that bridge when we come to it. Let's, mm -hmm. let's live to fight another day. Like sometimes, no, if there's no realistic option to, to win this battle ultimately, just call it a day now. I mean, it's, you're still young. You can you can learn from this and and just move on. But yeah, it is difficult, and it's, it's it's maybe it's not the right thing to ask your lawyer. I mean, this this is more when you need your your, your really <laughs> your significant other, um, your your family, where you like, are you willing to do this? Are you really willing to do this, or are you, are you just doing this because of a wrong feeling of duty? Yeah. That we need to yeah. give this last shot. I mean, sometimes you're like, no. And then it's I'm also attachment, right? Like, yeah. you know, I think this is something I talk a lot about with with founders is, you know, you're if you're an entrepreneur, like it, being an entrepreneur is like being a lawyer or a doctor in the end. Right. Like at first you don't know much. And over time you get better and better and better at it. It's a career path. It's not this thing you just do once if you really want to find success in, in this, you know, in this pathway but a lot of people think hey this is my one idea this is my one shot i'm going to go down 
I'm going to go down with the, the ship. So there's a lot of psychology in, in letting go, you know, it, it's not that easy. So it's very easy to say, you know, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to, I'm going to take the bad money and, uh, and see what happens. And so many of those pitfalls happen, but I think the, the one thing worth mentioning here is what I think we're talking about is we're talking about not the really strong companies because very rarely do I hear many problems like this um, from companies that are just kicking ass. You know, when you're picking your investors and they're lining up and you're you're oversubscribed and you're choosing the ones that you want and you're really on a fast track trajectory, you have so much more control. You have so much more power. You have so much more choice. But it's the ones that are desperate, that are limping into market, that are saying, hey, we haven't really found anything yet, but we need money to keep going. They're the ones that usually end up in these shit storms. Do you think that's fair? And it, it's it's a nice segue to, you know, that allows me to talk another topic that, that um, trees, let me, let, me, let me take away the control here. And the, Let's the, go the, ahead. Run up for a second. It's um, founders, when, when you have the chance, and, and Garrett, you mentioned this, um, when you have the just think about your your cap table more strategically. Um, at some point, founders realize that, but your cap table is um, it's the first and one of the strongest signaling devices you have. Um, when I when investors look at a startup, I mean, like like there's only so much due diligence you can do. Like these these might be first time entrepreneurs, whatever. But who do I see on the cap table? Like for example, former employers. Usually they know these people for quite some time. Um, maybe I learned something from that. Maybe it's it's a well-known professor with a reasonable stake um, who you know just lends credibility um, to the startup. And also have investors who can invest in the next financing round. I mean, this is this is the, the strongest signal you can send, I think, to, oh, amongst the strongest signals you can send to an incoming investors when basically all the existing investors say, we only talk to you because the founder makes us do this. We actually don't want you to invest here. We would like to preempt the round. I'm exaggerating to make the point. But it's just like this, this creates kind of FOMO on, on the part of incoming investors. And that's strong. That gives you a lot of lever. And also, it is, it is good psychologically for the incoming investor. You know, it helps them um, ease this tension they have where they think like, okay, I might be up to, they might be up to something. There might be something here, but I don't want to be dumb alone. So it's one of the existing investors also doing um, his or her pro rata. That's good. Actually, they want to do more. Oh, that sends me a signal. If you have nobody on your cap table who can help you in the next financing round, you've just lost this opportunity. So I think that it makes a lot of sense to think about your cap table strategically, avoid the, you know, too many shareholders, the too much dilution and too much debt equity, debt equity that cannot help you going forward. Back but, to you. <laughs> but is it not, again, also the topic like, okay, that's nice for the startups that have the luxury to do that? Because... Yeah, if, if if you can choose whoever you want, then of course you can be very strategic with your cap table and pick and choose the right ones. If the supply is a bit less, and maybe that's for quite some startups maybe today that needs to do an next round, that might actually be the case, then maybe there is not a lot of strategic thinking about your cap table. It's just getting on the cap table what is out there, and, and then it might be a bit more difficult. Well, yeah. I think this is the piece that you know you really have to think about why you're doing this and, and really check in with your why because as someone that has taken money that i wish i hadn't <laughs> i i sometimes reflect back and say would i have like as sven said earlier would i have would my life have been better if i just yeah. said hey i'm gonna i'm gonna end this chapter and and start a new one you know rather than dragging it out and there are there can be great misery that comes from getting in bed with the wrong person, you know, or the wrong group of people, but it's a really hard thing to do. And it's not one your counsel can tell you. It's probably not one, even your family or your spouse can tell you. I think definitely having mentors and other entrepreneurs, you know, to, to, that have been through that can be really, really helpful, but you know, this is, that's not a legal issue no. that is very much a social and psychological issue but i can say from my experience 
there are times I look back and go, hmm, I probably could have saved myself a, a couple years and a couple kept a couple more hairs on my head if I had uh, not held on for too long. And also the thing that you're saying, don't don't act out of desperation. That's that may be a very bad kind of leeway to do. Position of strength, right? Make making decisions. It's it's just like I love using the poker analogy, but when you're when you're playing a hand and you have good cards, you're gonna make better bets. You know, when you've got the weak hand and you're trying to bluff your way through, your probability of loss goes up you know, incredibly, as well as your stress and cortisol levels during the time that you're, you're playing that hand, you know, but that's, that's your risk profile. That is the choice that you individually have to make. And, you know, no one else can make that choice, but you. We have one more fuck up on the list. So let us move to that final one. It's the, the lack of stakeholder management when financing, when negotiating financing rounds. Uh, Sven, can you Talk a bit what you exactly mean by stakeholder management. Yes. Because we talked already about due diligence, but this seems to be something else, I suppose. Now it's, it's, it's more like um, looking at your existing cap table. Not so much. I mean, founders know that they need to smooth the, the, the incoming investor and answer all their lawyers and accountants and tech advisors' stupid due diligence questions and negotiate the agreements with them. But they also usually have an existing cap table. Um, and they're... Founders sometimes tend to focus a bit too much on the on the you know the, the big boys and girls who will invest with them, um, and they're just this, this is just good process management um, that you plan this way ahead of time and stay ahead of the curve because nothing I mean it, it inspires trust good project management something just clicks and when you sign a term sheet it usually has a 30 to 45 days exclusivity period and expectations on the investor side especially on the americans is uh we have wired the money by then or at least have been to the notary so what you don't want to do is like have this process drag on for months irritate people um and and potentially lose the transaction and you know like the, the people you have on your cap table some of them might have quote unquote special needs. If you have, and because we just mentioned this, if you have an IP transfer um, office from a university or a corporate, it is not that these people are, or these institutions are slow per se. They just have a different decision-making process. I mean, it's me using a euphemism for, yes, they are somewhat slower than um, individuals and, and um, uh, some VCs are, but you know that and you can factor that in. We, we had scenarios where we advised the investor and we asked the founders, like, do you have talked to this um, uh, a corporate before? Because, you know, it's a big, well-known corporate with a small stake. Yeah, 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 no problem. And then they sent them the documentation asking for the release of powers of attorney two days before signing. And then we got an email from the legal department that basically said, like, yeah, we just received this 120 pages. You know, what, what do you expect we will do in the next 48 hours? And I mean, that, that is something you can absolutely have anticipated. Um, so you, you front load the process. The other thing is um, when you have the luxury to work with international investors and investors who might not be familiar with the German, this, this wonderful system we have that we call notarization. I mean, assume that for everyone outside of Germany and most of the people inside of Germany, it is kind of alien, um, but it is important. So you can demonstrate control if you just front load this process. Don't let your say like, yeah, my angels will know what they're doing. Yeah, check in with them. It's just like what you don't want to find out is two days before signing when everything has been created, people haven't slept for some time, everybody is tense. And then you say like, yeah, we need another week because we need now to collect a couple of powers of attorney or KYC documents, you name it. Um, a good lawyer will help you with that. But it, I just find this, it's also a bit ignorant of some of the founders where they basically just said, like, I expect everyone to follow in, uh, to fall in line and just sign whatever we sent them. Mm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned something about kind of like, you know, the expiry of a, of a term sheet. And, you know, I just want to throw a scenario at you that I see quite often where, okay, you've got a, a startup that's maybe raising 
six, 700,000 euros, but they're, they're running out of runway. They already have a hard commit for a hundred K they really want to take some of the money in, but they haven't closed the rest of the round. What, what are your thoughts on, and is it, how do you, can you even do that here and kind of have a rolling close where you're taking in capital and letting that money roll in over time and then managing the expectations of that first investor that, you know, the, that the, the ones that come in two months later on the same terms aren't getting a, a better deal than they are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it all depends on 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 the first investor, whether that investor is willing to lead around where the syndicate has not yet been put together. Um, assuming yes, yeah, there are ways. I mean, you can you can do a first close, doing you know a real equity um, uh, issuance, um, but that takes a bit of time until it's registered with the commercial register, and then do a second close once you have the other investors lined up. Or what you can also do is just have this investor do a small investment through a convertible, um, which is easy to execute, and have that convertible then roll into the um, price financing round. So if you're really desperate and you need money within a, a week or so, I'll probably do the, the, the upfront small convertible. Um, but it all depends on whether the investor is willing to, to make that leap. You any any experience with stakeholder management, so managing actually the 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 investors of the prior rounds when you search for new money? Have you fallen into the trap of maybe treating them a bit too arrogant? I mean, I've definitely had. Well, as as your lawyer, Garrett, that's 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 a tricky that's a trick question, right? You you realize? (laughs) Is it rhetorical? I'm not sure. Has Garrett ever been too arrogant? <laughs> no, please. Look, look, I, I mean, shareholder and stakeholder management, it, as the CEO, at least, and, and usually the CFO, as the company starts to grow, is kind of a core part of the job. You know, sure. like I, I did, this isn't just in preparation for a finance round or just at a board meeting. Like the reality is, is somebody has a big stake. I mean, there were times I would get a call from a couple of that were board members, a couple of my investors, they were sitting in the guy's wine cellar, two bottles of wine deep. And they decided to like call and see how things were going like your buddy, you know? And that's a tricky situation to be put in because you're like, fuck, it's 10 o'clock at night. Why are you calling me on Tuesday night? Like, you know, two sheets to the wind asking me about the business. But in the same sense, in this, on this, in the same regard, like, what are you going to do? You know, kind of got to take the call, kind of got to smooth it over. And what I kind of learned over time was I need to be more proactive on this so that doesn't happen. So, you know, I kind of started putting out regular updates. You know, I get all my startups now to to have all of their, you know, put out kind of once a month, at least regular updates to their investors have, you know, set up open calls on Zoom where they can zoom in that they've got allocated blocked off every couple of weeks so they can just answer quick questions. Just because, especially if you want them to exercise their pro rata or participate in the next round or continue to open doors or sometimes just leave you the hell alone, it helps to be on top of this stuff. And the more communicative you are, the less and proactive, the the less reactive you are. And and I do think in the end, it still comes down to you know treating these people as as partners in the journey. Now that got increasingly hard for me. You know, by the time you know, in one of my ventures, by the time we'd raised five million, I had sixteen different people on the on the cap table, and you know that starts getting a little bit hairy and a little bit. Uh, more difficult but you do realize they're the active ones and then they're kind of the passive ones right and you start to understand what their objectives are and some people just want to add to their high risk side of their investment portfolio other people want to are high net worth people that just want to play in the cool kid sandbox and you find that those people often require a little bit more of your attention so I think, you know, in the end, it's just part of the game, right? I mean, there is the governance side of things that you can't neglect, but there are things that you can do to be proactive and to foster and maintain those relationships that are just going to make it easier. I 
nobody taught me that. I learned that by the hard way, by having to deal with a lot of pains in the ass over time. And now it's it's a lot easier because I just allocate a little bit of time each week or every couple of weeks to keep everyone abreast and, you know, allocate time to make myself available. And then I can be in control of that situation because in the end, the hardest part is you have so much to do, especially in the early stages. And if you have investors that are breathing down your neck or constantly ringing you, trying to engage, you are losing control and you're losing time from the other things that are important. Yeah, and I think also because I think we are kind of running out of time here, I, but I think it, for me at least, that, that's what I really learned also from this discussion. There is so much kind of what we call tacit knowledge in this whole process. We are talking with a lawyer, which, which means a lot of codification of knowledge is out there, but at the same time, there is so much tacit knowledge in understanding how do I identify the right investor? How do I manage my investor portfolio? How do I kind of anticipate that I do not get into trouble later on, which seem to require a lot of also experience. And to some extent, it will be learning by doing. I have the feeling um, which might, again, I think, kind of give people that have done a series of entrepreneurial endeavors in a kind of advantage here. Definitely. I think once you make these mistakes, you certainly don't want to make them again. And they're pretty well Im embedded in your psyche. But, you know, I will go back to what we kind of talked about earlier, which is focus on your execution. If you're kicking ass mm. and your business is growing at the trajectory that everyone else is hoping that it's going to grow, it's amazing how people will get the hell out of your way. Mm. Right. If you're flaky and you're not executing and there's a lot of uncertainty, that's when people are going to get nervous. And rightly so. I gave you a million bucks and it, I'm getting the feeling I just lit that on fire. So the best thing a founder can do is focus on being successful, you know, and when things go wrong, then you're going to have to allocate more energy to, to appeasing the people that, you know, help get you there. And then it's time to call Sven <laughs> to get you out of the problems. Yeah. <laughs> or your priest or your... your... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, guys, I really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, actually, I, I learned quite a lot. Um, I know all the terms like liquidity preference and stuff like that. But then if you hear the, the kind of stories that are behind it, I think it's very interesting to learn about that. So thanks a lot for sharing your experience, Sven, you from the legal background, Garrett, you from your founder background. I really enjoyed it. And of course, I hope also the audience enjoyed it. And I hope we can uh, invite our audience again for the next time for the next episode. So thanks, Sven. Thanks, Garrett, for being here, for discussing. And thanks to our audience for listening. If you like this episode, please don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast device. And apart from that, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Ciao.